Well, it is great to see you guys here with us today at Redeemer City Church. Whether it's your first time here with us or whether you are one of our members, regular attenders, just want to say how happy I am to see you, uh, what a joy and privilege it is to get to worship with you this morning and to uh, bring our teaching for this morning. So starting back in, uh, in, starting in August, we had kicked off our fall series, which was, uh, which was a, a, an old series, it was a new series. <laughs> Last year, we had started a series going through the life of David in 1 Samuel. Uh, we took a break from it uh, to, uh, to do a few other series, and then we kicked back in it uh, back in August to go back and uh, to pick back up where we left off going through the life of David. And, uh, and so that's the series we've been going through this fall. However, this week, uh, God laid a message on my heart. Uh, he just earlier this week, as I was uh, uh, doing some some reading and, and whatnot that was not related to sermon prep at all, God put a passage on my heart that just just stayed with me. It, it, it simmered. I could I couldn't uh, I couldn't even think about what I was supposed to be preaching on this week because this one was just weighing so heavily on me. And so I thought that perhaps uh, you know just in what it was doing personally in me. And how uh, it seemed as though God had really put it on my heart that maybe it was something that I should share with you guys. So for today, we are uh, we're not doing David. We are doing this message instead. Uh, if you guys have been a redeemer for a while now, you know that I'm normally not the kind of person to do something like that. We have the plan and we stick to it. You know, I think uh, the look on Eli's face this morning, whenever I got here and said that I was taking a break to do a special message, said it all. You know, where I said it, he goes. Shocked, <laughs> uh, but uh, but like I said, I think that um, like I said, I, I believe that uh, that's what God was leading me to do this week. So we are going to be in Jeremiah twenty nine today. So if you want to open up your Bible to Jeremiah chapter twenty nine and follow along with us there, uh, we'll be starting in verse four. Once you get there, if you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay because we will have the text on the screens next to me so that you can follow along with the reading there. But I'll give you just a moment if you're going to uh, open up in your personal Bible or Bible app, to Jeremiah chapter 29, once again. Jeremiah 29, and then starting verse 4 is where we're going to be today. By the way, today marks the seven-year anniversary of Redeemer City Church. So, congratulations being here. Thank you. Uh, that, that is a, a very significant moment in the life of a new church, and so uh, we praise God for all that he's done. All right, Jeremiah chapter 29. All right, it looks like we're all about there, so we're going to go ahead and jump in and reading uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 and starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you 
and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. In one of his uh, great and classic books called The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote in, that, in the, that book that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but that he shouts at us in our pains. And I think that's a very true statement. If you've been walking with God, uh, if you have been following Christ for any amount of time now, then you know that it is typically during the times of hardship, it's during the times of confusion, conflict, or whatever else, that we, uh, that we tend to learn the most about God, that we tend to draw closer to him than we ever had been before, uh, and where he really seems to speak to us in those times. Because when we go through times of pleasure and ease, we well, you know, as being fallen and imperfect people that we are, we tend to, we tend to not listen to him quite as much and, and be distracted by the ease, pleasure, entertainments, or so on. And so I think what Lewis said is absolutely true. And I think that because it's true, it's for good reason that when you read the Bible, the Bible is full of stories of his people suffering. If you've read the Bible before, I mean, you guys read, read the whole thing, read most of it, you're, maybe you're familiar with a lot of the stories Uh, you know that 99% of the stories in Scripture, starting in the Old Testament with Abraham, going all the way through the New Testament, even in the life of Jesus and in the lives of the apostles, we don't read a bunch of stories about God's people just really, you know, living the life, as we say. Instead, what we read is a lot of stories about them suffering. We read a lot of stories where they're going through conflict, where they are confused, where there, there is pain being endured, like I said, even a life of Jesus, right? Even in Jesus' life, we see him in conflict with the Pharisees and, and having opposition from all these different groups and so on. We see it with the new church and so on. Why? Because God speaks to us very clearly in those times, which is why in, in Scripture, which is God's revelation, him, him revealing himself, we see so many of these stories. And we come to one of those stories here in Jeremiah chapter 29, where the people of God are suffering. Just to give you a little bit of context, and we can go into it deeper in a moment, but they are in exile in Babylon here. They are suffering. They are, uh, they, they are confused, disillusioned. And so here what we have in Jeremiah 29 is one of the clearest statements of God to his people on his will for their life. But there's some irony with this, because though it is, is what I believe one of the clearest statements in all of scripture about God's will for our life, it is also one of the most misunderstood, I believe. And so that's why I wanted, it, it was stuck in my head this week. I, I felt like God was, um, was, was giving me insight into this. That was, like I said, very uh, personal to me first, but then I felt as though he was calling me to bring it to you as well. And so we're going to look at God's will for our life, especially God's will for our life as we suffer, when we were confused, disillusioned, burned out, in a hard spot. What is God's will for our life, particularly in those moments, moments which some of you guys might be going through right now? We're going to learn with three things. We're going to look at the promise, the purpose, and the piety that we learn about here in this passage. We're going to look at the promise, 
the purpose, and then finishing off with the piety. So, let's begin with the promise. Has anyone ever come to you before, and they start the conversation with you by saying, well, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Have you ever been on the receiving end of that before? Maybe you've been on the giving end of that before. It's one of those things, on the receiving end, where somebody comes to you and they say, I've got good news, I've got bad news for you. You know, I never quite know how to respond to that. Like, should I be happy or should I be worried? <laughs> what are you telling me? This is not giving me some very useful information. But they come to you and they say that, right? And I'm the kind of person who I like to hear the bad news first because so we can end on a high note. Uh, sadly, sometimes the bad news is just so such a bummer <laughs> that the good news doesn't really matter, right? But this letter from Jeremiah to the exiles, Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. He was not taken captive whenever the Babylonians came in. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. But many, many, many of the Israelites who were living in Jerusalem, whenever the Babylonian Empire and King Nebuchadnezzar came in and ransacked the city, they took many of the, especially they would have taken the, the cultural elite, the, you know, the, the wealthy, um, the, the intellectual elite, they would have taken many of these uh, Israelites, these Jews, and brought them back with them to Babylon. And so this letter is from Jeremiah, uh, speaking as a prophet, declaring God's word to them, to the exiles who are in Babylon, okay? And his letter is, hey, I've got good news and bad for news for you kind of situation. Let's start with the bad news, all right? Let's start with the bad news. So here's the bad news that Jeremiah has for them. If you read the context of Jeremiah 29 here, you don't, have to, you don't even have to go back that far. If you go back just a chapter before, you'll read about this guy named Hananiah. Hananiah was this supposed prophet who stepped up, and he, told, he was with the exiles in Babylon, and he told them, hey, guys, I have a word from the Lord. I have a word from God, so listen up. We are about to be delivered. This, this really sucks, this place that we're in. It's hard living where we are. It was, it was disappointing to see, you know, David's throne be uh, torn down and now someone sitting on that throne who is not in the line of David, right? To see our temple destroyed, our city destroyed. Because whenever the Babylonians came in, they, they destroyed everything, right? The Davidic kingdom ended. The temple that Solomon had built torn down to the ground. The city ransacked. And so this, uh, the, these false prophets, like Hananiah being one of them, comes and says, guys, God's about to bring deliverance. It's right around the corner, so don't get comfortable. Don't wallow around saying he, he's, he's going to forget about us because we are about to be saved. We're going to see our enemies judged. We're going to see the Davidic king put back on the throne, and it's going to be great. And so put yourself in their situation experiencing the absolute destruction of your home, witnessing the tearing down of the Davidic throne because they believed through God's prophecies that the throne of David was going to be the the lineage through which the kingdom of God, the everlasting, right, the the never-ending kingdom would come through. And they just saw that, that throne torn down. right? So they're confused, they're disillusioned, they're living in a strange place, in a strange culture, strange religion, strange laws, right? It's completely foreign to them. And so if you put yourself in their shoes, if you would have heard that prophecy from Hananiah or any of the other ones that, that God is about to save us, how many of us would hesitate to accept that message? Right? I, I know that I would be thrilled. I'd be like, all right, that's great news. Here's the bad news that Jeremiah has for them. We see it in verse 8 and 9. Whenever God comes to them and he says, don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them for they are prophesying falsely to you 
in my name, I have not sent them. Instead, this is what he tells them. He says, deliverance is not a right around the corner. In verse 10, he says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. 70 years. That's about two generations worth, right? 70 years, he says, is, is about how long you can expect to stay there. That's a hard word. How many of you guys are going through some kind of an exile right now? You're going through a time, maybe, maybe it's some conflict that you're having in relationships. Maybe it is some confusion, disillusionment you're having in, in, in career or in your academic uh, you know, training and in, in, in something else in life. And God says to you, you know what? I'm going to deliver you. Things are going to be all right in 70 years. How many of us would be able to then persevere, go on, for 70 more years in the exile that you're in right now. If God told you, I'm going to deliver you, but it's going to be on the other side of that. That's a hard word. That is a hard message to hear. But this is the first thing. That, that's the bad news in this letter that God sends to them through Jeremiah. Hey, no, it's not right around the corner. I'm not about to save you. You're going to be there for a while. You're going to be there for a while. But then here comes the good news. Okay, so he says, he says don't listen to those false prophets. They are not from me, but here's the good news. He says, so it's going to be 70 years. He says, but then I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning to restore you to this place. So there's the good news. You're going to be there for a while, but do not doubt that I am not faithful to you. You're going to be there for a while, but it does not mean that I've abandoned you, right? You're going to be there 70 years, but it does not mean that I've given up on you, that I've, that I've left you there. After that time, I will attend to you, he says, and I will confirm my promises. Once again, how many of us, just based upon that word, if we were to know that what you're going through now is going to last for another three years, another five years, another decade, but God says, but I will confirm my promises. I will stay true. Do not doubt my goodness. How many of us, would it, it would be so difficult for us to not start to slide into doubting God's goodness? How many of us would be able to persevere on, remain obedient, stay true, just, just hold on to faith? But that is God's good news for them, that he will stay true to his promises. Notice what he says to them. In verse 11, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. I want to just unpack what he says there just a little bit. The first thing he says is this. He says, for I know the plans that I have for you. Okay, so number one, they're the plans that he has. They're not the plans of the false prophets. They're not even the plans of the Jews. It's not the plans that they would have chosen for themselves, that they were hoping for. He says to them, they're the plans that I have. They are mine. Why? Because God, being a sovereign Lord who foreknows and foreordains all things, right, from the, the greatest of human events down to the smallest and most seemingly insignificant, he is in control of them all. So what he says here is, is I am in control of this situation. You are not. Your false prophets are not. The Babylonians are not. They're the plans that I have. And then on top of that, he says, and I know them. Okay, so not only is he saying, you're not in control, but I am, but he's saying to them, you're going to have to hold on in exile. You're going to have to obey. You're going to have to wait 70 years, right, for plans that you don't know, but I know. You see, I think some of us, if we were told, 
if we, had, if we had a special message from God, that the hard season you're going through right now is going to last longer than you desire it to, right? But he has a plan to get you out. I think many of us would say, I could survive, I could endure, persevere if I knew the plan. For many of us, it's very hard to just resign control and to ju- and resign control so completely that we say, as long as God knows the plan, that's good enough. But that's what he says to them. He says, I know the plans that I have for you. And he expects that to be enough for them. That's challenging. And he says this, and he says to give you, uh, he, he tells them that the promise contains a couple of things. He says to give them a future and a hope. And he says, and that they will seek him, and when they seek him, they will find him, and that he will restore the relationship between them. So that's a couple of things. He says, I know the plans. Here's what the plans include, even though they don't have all the details. The plans include their well-being, right? He says, my plans are for your well-being in that future, right? So all the, the physical and emotional suffering you're going through right now, he says, those will be relieved. But then there's also a relational promise. He says, not only will their, their physical well-being, right, just their, their socioeconomic status be relieved, but he says, even more than that, even greater than that, that it will be a time whenever they will seek him, and whenever they seek him with all their heart, they will find him, and he will restore that relationship between them. So the promise is, like I said, about a well-being and a relationship that he has for them. And it is this promise that he expects to be the fuel that they need to make them persevere through exile. This is our first main point. The pain of exile can only be persevered by the promises of God. The pain of exile can only be persevered by the promises of God. No matter what kind of exile you're going through in your life right now, whether it is dealing with, with, with pain and sickness, whether it is dealing with conflict, whether it is dealing with, with, with burnout, depression, anxiety, whether it is dealing with the stresses that come from your job, right, or, or, or any other kind of situation, the only fuel that will truly get you through it will be the fuel that comes from believing and receiving hope in the promises of God. That is the fuel that you need to persevere through pain, suffering, and exile. His promises to give you a future and a hope. Just let's think about that for a second. The, the, Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, but like I said, I think one of the most misunderstood, especially in context, where he says to them, I have plans for your well-being. He says to give you a future and a hope. Right now, so often we throw that on, on paintings at Hobby Lobby, right, and we tweet them or we put them on our social media, but we don't really think about what that means. There's an implicit challenge in there. Because what does that mean to give you a future and a hope, right? It sounds nice, but, but, but what does it mean practically? Well, why do you need both? Why do you need a future and a hope? Because he's saying to them, he says, I've got that future for you, but you're not experiencing that future right now. Thus, why it is a future, right? Hope is only necessary when you're waiting for that which you have been promised. But if you have received that, that which you have been promised or been longing for, then hope is no longer necessary. So this is what he says. This is why he says a future and a hope. Because he says, I'm giving you that future, and that future provides you with the hope to live in the now. Does that make sense? He is saying to them that I expect you to persevere through what you're going through now, though it is going to be far longer than you desire, by the hope which comes from the future 
that is guaranteed by my promises. You see, the promises of God give you the hope that you need that fuels the perseverance you need in the now. Hope fuels the now. Friends, like I said, so often we, we wonder, we go through times in our life where we ask ourselves, does God have a future for me? Have you ever been there? Maybe some more of our seasoned people in here. Have you ever been through a time like that in your life where you wondered, is there a future for you? Do you, do you have hope? You know, some of our younger people, especially, you know, our, our college students, young adults, do you often wonder that? If you haven't yet, there's going to be a time whenever you're going to wonder, what, what's the point of everything I'm doing right now, right? Is there a future for me? Here's the good news of this passage, that the God who determines the future has a future for you. Even though you don't know the details of how it's going to work out and the plan and the timing, just the fact of knowing that he has that future for you and that he is faithful to his promises should provide you with the hope you need to persevere. What does this mean for us just on a practical day-to-day level? It means this, that you must listen to and receive God's promises, then persevere. Listen to and receive God's promises, then persevere. Whenever we read in the scripture, uh, it, it, especially in the Old Testament, whenever God comes to his people directly, he comes to them through a prophet, and he says, hear the word of the Lord. What he is saying to them is not just this. He's not just saying, you know, audibly intake the speech that you are hearing. He's talking about more than that. He's talking about a hearing, which is a listening and a receiving, okay? Because you need to listen and receive the promises of God. Otherwise, they do no good for you. It's like this. Uh, Let me put it in terms that Cajuns can understand. You are presented with a table with fine food and drink upon it, right? You're presented a table with a cochon de lait, right? Or Or a crawfish boil, whatever it is. You're presented with a table with the finest of meats and the finest of boudins, right? With, with, with not just best stop, but with Billy's boudin balls, right? It is the best. Come at me. All right. All right. It's the best. It's wonderful. It's delicious. It makes your mouth water. It works up your appetite. The smell is intoxicating, right? right? There's plenty of drink and just, here's your feast. You walk up to it and, and, and the host of the feast says, this is for you, right? I laid this out for you. It's yours. And you say, that's nice. And you walk away. So often you sit in church and a preacher lays before you the feast of God's promises for you. You get a little inspired. The smell is pleasing. You say that's nice and you walk away. You're not receiving those promises into your heart, letting them become the fuel that, 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 that fires up your engine to then go out and persevere, live righteously and obediently as he calls you to. You haven't allowed that hope to come into your heart and soul and fill up your soul like water fills the ocean. You must listen, and then you have to receive, guys. You have to receive these promises, and then once you receive, they empower you to persevere. Why is it so important that you persevere? Because perseverance is not just endurance. The great uh, Christian writer Oswald Chambers wrote this. He said, perseverance is more than endurance. It is endurance combined with absolute assurance and certainty 
that what we are looking for is going to happen. Endurance is whenever you just stand firm against all of the, uh, the opposition powers or forces that are going against you. But perseverance is the more active sense of the, of, of the idea the, 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 that we're getting across here. Perseverance is not just standing firm, but it is, uh, it is going on. It is advancing. It is marching forward even in spite of the forces and opposition that is against you. Friends, if you would accept, if you would receive God's promises for you, promises that are as true for you as they were for the, the, those exiled Israelites who heard this, then that would empower you to persevere, to quit living in defeat as so many of us have been living. In defeat against sin, in defeat against just living passive lives where we're, where we're not much good to anyone. We're not living lives of active obedience, of righteousness, and of taking written, uh, noble risks on behalf of God's calling to us. Receive God's promises so you can persevere. Why is it so important that these exiles hear God's promises? Why was it so important that God send this letter to them and they hear those promises to him? But the good and the bad news, that they're going to be there a while, but that his promises should give them the, the, the fuel they need to persevere on. Why is it so important that they hear that and that, we, and that we hear that message as well? Here's why. Because God had a purpose for them in their exile. God has a reason why he sent them into exile. Now, look, if you grew up going to Sunday school, if you grew up going to a, a Christian school with Bible classes or whatever else, and you were taught about the, the narrative themes of the Old Testament, right? We might hear that, that God has a reason for sending them into exile and say, well, yeah, it's because they were disobedient. And in one sense, that's true. In one, in one sense, that's absolutely true. The narrative arc of the Old Testament is of God's people uh, receiving his blessings, living in obedience. They forget about his blessings. They fall into disobedience. He allows them to receive the consequences of that by being captured or, or oppressed by some foreign nation. They come to their senses, repent, call out to him. He rescues them, and so on. We see this cycle throughout the Old Testament, and in one sense, that's what's happening here. That's absolutely true. Whenever you read Jeremiah, he tells them right that you are experiencing the consequences for the wounds and wretchedness of your sin, your idolatry, your forgetting me. But, okay, so one reason, uh, on one hand, in one sense, it is true that the reason for their exile is the consequences for their sin. But let me suggest to you, he has an even greater reason. He has an even greater reason. It's in verse 7. He says, pursue the well-being of this city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. How incredible is that? If we place it in the context of what God is doing, especially if we place it in the context of their sin and them receiving the consequences for their sin. Look, whenever you were growing up as a child and your, your parents would punish you, discipline you for something wrong that you had done, discipline consequences is never fun, right? It never feels good. And whenever they would give it to you, it just, it just hurt, Right? Whether it was a, a spanking or whether it was a grounding punishment, some, some other kind, it just hurt. It wasn't great. And I think that we often assume that whenever we experience God's discipline in our life, it's going to be nothing but pain. It's just going gonna to suck, right? Because whenever God disciplines us, it's just like the way our parents discipline us, which is just mere force or pain. But here's what we need to recognize, that God, the Father, whenever our Father disciplines us, even his disciplining can be redemptive. 
because they are experiencing the discipline, the consequences for their sin, but look at what God is doing even in their disciplining. Even as they're receiving the consequences for their sin, what does he say to them? He's saying, you can be agents of redemption in the place that you are in, right? You can be uh, agents of well-being for the city that you're in, and then whenever you do that, whenever you live out this calling that I'm putting on you to be agents of redemption and of well-being for the city that I have sent you to, then you will thrive as well. How incredible is that? That even God's disciplining is redemptive for his people. That even whenever they're experiencing the consequences for their sin, they can still be, like I said before, agents of redemption. Look at what God said to them. He said in in verse 7 there, but he says it uh, several times in this passage. He says, I have deported you. He said, I have deported you, the city that I have sent you to. Notice that. He's He's saying, don't point your finger at Nebuchadnezzar. And don't blame your situation on the Babylonians. He says, I have sent you there. How incredible is that? Why? Because he has a reason for it. He has a calling on their life for them being there, even in their exile. Even their exile is redemptive. The calling that he places on them as they are in their exile is that they have a responsibility to accept. A responsibility to accept, which is this calling to pursue the well-being of the city that they are in. And this, this calling to accept that responsibility that he has placed on them in the, in the place that he has put them comes with a promise that if they would start to, if they would accept that calling, live it out. If they would receive that, that responsibility on themselves and then be true to it, he says, you will thrive. So look, whenever God says to them, you're going to be there for 70 years in exile, it's not 70 years of just abject misery. He's telling them, even in exile, even while you wait for redemption, he says, you can start to thrive if you will hear my calling, if you will see this responsibility I've placed before you and accept it. How incredible is that? And I think that that has some very, very profound lessons for us. Here's my second point. The acceptance of our responsibility in exile offers us a source of immense purpose. God said to them, I have deported you. I have deported you, right? I have sent you. And we need to understand something in our life. Whenever we go through exile, whenever you go through a a, a season of difficulty, a time of confusion, whatever else it might be, whether it is partly because of a consequence of your own sin, or even if it's not because of consequence of your own sin, and God just has you going through a wilderness anyway, right? No, but any time that God sends you into exile, he has a calling for you in exile. He has a calling for you. He has an invitation waiting for you in the wilderness that he brings you to. And if you would see that calling and receive that responsibility on your life, then he has thriving waiting for you. What is that thriving? It is the experience of a great purpose. It is the experience of having some meaning in your life. And wherever you experience that great purpose and meaning that comes with accepting the responsibility that you have in suffering, well, then, friends, that is what can empower you and give you what you need to continue to persevere through suffering. Therefore, in whatever situation God has you in, you have a responsibility to accept. You see, I think that there's an assumption today, which is a very American assumption, but one that is even accepted by many Christians as well, and that has been preached in many churches, which is that any time that we go through pain, 
suffering, confusion, or just any kind of discomfort in our life, that the whole point of it is to get out of it, right? We think that very much as Americans, that, that discomfort of any kind, uh, displeasure, pain of any kind must be avoided at all cost, right? Avoid it, get out of it as fast as you can. When you're going through it, distract yourself from it with the, the endless mind-numbing entertainment that is offered to us through our streaming services and through social media, right? Numb yourself to the pain and suffering of life or numb yourself to the pain and suffering of life through various other means of, of numbing ourselves through partying or, 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 or food or whatever else, right? Just get yourself out of it. And I think that many Christians hold this implicit assumption as well, but we just kind of try to Christianize it some, right? We often assume, and maybe we've been told, that whenever we are going through pain and suffering in our life, that all that God expects of us is to call on him to get us out of it that all that God expects of us is to have a faith big enough to believe that he'll get us out of it. No, in in one sense, I already talked about holding on to God's promise, right? But what I don't like about that message is that it assumes that there's no reason for us being in that time and that there's nothing expected of us in the way that we ought to live through moments or seasons of exile, right? Just consider this. What kind of a masochistic God would God be if the only reason that he sent us into times of suffering was so that we would try to find a way out of it. That's not good news. God, why, why would you send me into suffering just so I could try to get out of it? Why would you send me into suffering just so that I could sit here and wail and cry out to you that you would end it? Right? You see, and I've preached on this passage before, we forget that, yes, God calmed the storm, that the disciples, Jesus calmed the storm that the disciples were in, but then he turned to them and rebuked them for having no faith. You see, I think God allows us to go into our times of suffering, exile, wilderness, and whatever kind that might be, right? Relational, just something internal you're going through. And I believe that he has a reason for us going through it. He has a redemptive purpose. He has a calling and an invitation waiting for us in the wilderness. That if we would accept that responsibility upon our lives, then it would fuel us with the purpose that we need to then live out the responsibility, right? To to shoulder the burden that he has given us and to do so in a way that we might say is thriving. Because that is what he promises to the people of Israel who are in exile. He says, pursue the well-being. He says, and whenever you do, you will thrive. Accept my calling and you will thrive. What if God desires you to nobly accept the responsibility that comes with the place that he has put you in and not just try to, not just an expectation to try to find a way out of it? Here's what this means for us. It means accept the responsibility that comes with wherever God places you. And whatever you do, don't be surprised if you experience a great source of purpose that comes with it. So much so that you might even be said to thrive while you're in the wilderness or thrive while you're in exile. When we look around at the world, we see that the world and we see that life is a place that is full of suffering and that is in need of redemption. Sometimes we are just observers to the suffering of life and the need for redemption. Other times we experience it. We're not just spectators, but we're the ones going through it. We're the ones going through the ringer. We're the ones walking the hard road. We're the ones that feel alone, or we're the ones that feel oppressed. We're the ones that feel like we've got the weight of the world going against us. This is the place that we live in. 
But here's the good news of this passage, and I believe that the good news, uh, this is the good news of Scripture for us people living in a fallen world of sin, suffering, and in need of redemption, that because God makes you agents of redemption, and that because God, who is in control of all things, has an invitation waiting for you, that in every instance of suffering that we see in this world, there's an opportunity, if we will accept the responsibility God places on our life, to change it for the better. At this intersection between the world's suffering and our calling, God makes us agents of redemption. And whenever we go there and we accept that responsibility and that purpose that he has placed on our life, there is immense purpose to be found. Something that is so much better than just sitting back and remaining in that comfortable place. Something that is so much better than just passively sitting by whenever you're going through suffering, trying to distract yourself through entertainment or trying to avoid or get out of or take shortcuts out of the wilderness that you're in. That purpose that comes with accepting the responsibility God places on our life is so much better. And if we would just quit, right, choosing the American way, Right? If we would just quit choosing that way of, of uh, that promises of a life of nothing but ease and comfort and instead choose the Christian way. If we, if we go to that intersection that, life, that God has for us in life, then there you will find a source of meaning for your life that will shield you against all the storms that comes with living in this world. So God tells them, my promise ought to be enough to help you to persevere. He tells them that whenever they persevere by his promise and accept the responsibility he has placed on them in their situation, that they will experience great purpose and thrive. But what was their responsibility? Right? If I said, if, as I said before, God doesn't expect us to go through the 70 years of exile or whatever wilderness you might go through, exile you might go through, if he doesn't expect us to just be passive observers or passive sufferers in it, but as a calling, what is our calling? What was their calling and the responsibility they had placed on them? He says in verses five and six, he said, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. One of the jobs of a preacher is to take whatever's happening in a passage of Scripture that we read, which happened a long time ago. There's a lot of distance between us and where we read about. There's distance in time. There's distance in culture. There's distance in language, right? And so the preacher's job is to take that context and build a bridge where it makes sense in our context. But friend, I don't have to do any of that work for those verses because those verses make absolute sense to us just like they did to them build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, have families. I don't need to do any exegetical explanation for that. And God's calling to them of what it means to be living faithfully in exile means the very same thing for us. It means the very same thing for us. You see, whenever God told them that he expected them to live in this way, what they would have understood and what anyone from the ancient world would have understood God was calling them to do uh, as they lived in exile was to be people who lived a pious life. 
That is what God was calling them to. He was calling them to piety. He was calling them to be a pious people as they lived in exile. Because in the ancient world, and even in the New Testament, in the, in the Bible, piety meant something different than what we mean today. Whenever we talk about piety today, what we are often talking about is just a very, very, very spiritual, very, very personal and inner like holiness, right? When we talk about piety, we think of, of, of going alone in your prayer closet with a candle and Chris Tomlin or Hillsong playing and reading our Bible verses, right? That's what piety means, but then it means nothing for being any real good for the world outside of that. It just means by being a very good, nice person on the inside and not much else. But we got this is almost the exact opposite meaning of piety in, in Scripture and in the ancient world. For them, piety meant something so much more than this. Let me explain it to you this way. In the ancient world, the greatest example of piety that they had was of a man named Aeneas. Aeneas was written about in a book called The Aeneid by the ancient Latin poet Virgil. Maybe some of you guys have heard of Virgil before, but Virgil wrote The Aeneid, which was about this guy, Aeneas. Aeneas was a Trojan who was a warrior living in Troy at the time whenever the Greeks came in and destroyed Troy with a Trojan horse. You all remember that story? Pretty famous story there. Well, Aeneas was one of the warriors in the city, Troy, whenever the Greeks took it over. And the book, the Aeneid, opens with him talking about how the greatest and most glorious of deaths for a soldier was to die in battle. And so there they are, all his brothers and comrades around here are dying in battle. And so in his mind and in this culture, right, the most glorious thing he could have done was to go and fight to the end as well. But because he was a pious man, he understood that he had greater obligations upon him, which was this. Deep into the city where the fires had not yet reached and the enemy soldiers had not yet gotten to was his family, his wife and his children and his father who was crippled. And if Aeneas chose his own personal glory to die in battle, his family and especially his crippled father would be doomed to either the fires that were burning in the city or the soldiers with their swords and spears. And so what he chooses instead of his own personal glory is, a, is he chooses piety. What does that mean? His obligation to his family. And so he leaves the battle and he goes and he takes his crippled father and he places him up on his shoulders and he takes his children by their hand and he carries them out of the city through the flames and through the battle to safety where their lives are spared. You see, the ancient Greeks and Romans, because they saw Aeneas in this great act that he had done to choose obligation to his family over his own personal uh, fame or glory, they saw him as the ultimate example of piety. And you can actually look up, they, have, they had coins with Aeneas on it where he was carrying his crippled father over his shoulder. What they understood as piety was not just this deeply inward, very spiritual holiness, but rather instead someone who lived faithfully to all of the obligations in their life. The pious person in the ancient world, but also in Scripture, was the person who lived faithfully in our obligations to God and all of the obligations that God places in our life. So living piously means, yes, personal holiness to him, but it means being who he has called me to be in my family as a father, and as a husband. And whenever I live those out well, I am being a pious man. And who he has called me to be in my job, in my place of work, in the places where he has made me a leader or a participant of some kind, in my neighborhood, and in my city. As I faithfully live out all of those obligations in the place in life that God has put me, that is what it means to be a pious man or a pious woman. 
And that is what God is calling him to do here. He says, I have placed you there. I put you there. Remember, I'm in control. I deported you. What I want you to do, I want you to live pious lives. I want you to build houses. Build some houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Have sons and daughters. Be the people that I call you to be, even in spite of where you're at. Because the whole purpose of the Babylonians to take the Israelites out of their home and bring them to Babylon was what? To make them Babylonians. That was the whole point. What is God saying? He's saying, continue to be my people. He says, as you are living in a, in a heathen empire, you continue to be my people and my kingdom. And you spread my kingdom by living out the obligations that I have put on you by putting you in the place that you're in. How are we going to do that? Well, look, the Greeks and the Romans, they had Ienius. And they thought that Ienius was the greatest and the ultimate example of piety. But we have the ultimate example of piety in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the ultimate and perfectly pious man, the only perfectly pious man who ever lived. And that in, in his whole life, what he chose always above himself and what he chose always above his own comforts and pleasures was obedience to God the Father obedience to God the Father and living out the obligations that God the Father had placed upon him in whatever situation he found himself in. And ultimately, whenever he has the cross placed before him and he has the cup of wrath which he is going to drink, have to drink placed before him, and he acknowledges before God in prayer that this is not his will. But what does he do instead? He says, but not my will, but yours. You see, because what was he doing? He was living out in that moment what he had always been. Someone who piously followed, faithfully obeyed all the obligations that God had placed on his life. And in that moment, the obligation, the calling that God had placed on him, the responsibility to accept was to shoulder the cross, shoulder the cross that should have been ours, and to die the death that should have been ours, to receive the punishment that should have been ours, so that whenever we wicked sinners, so that whenever we uh, rebellious idolaters, so that whenever we fickle people have the gall and the audacity to go to the Lord in prayer and to ask him to deliver us, to, to claim his promises on our behalf, that we might even have a shred of hope in being able to do that, we don't just have a shred, but we have a great hope because of what Christ accomplished for us us. Because Christ accomplished it for us. Because he was obedient to God's calling. Because he stepped into that intersection of the world's suffering and need, right, and his calling, there is infinite blessings for you and I. And so, we are now called to live out the same kind of life where we don't choose lives that are for our own pleasures or that are for our own comforts, but we instead look at every situation that God has placed you in, understanding that every situation you're in is one that God has put you in, not outside of his control, even as one that you've not chosen for yourself, but one that God places you in and one in which he has a responsibility for you to bear. He has a cross for you to shoulder. He has a noble reason that you, a noble burden for you being there that you must take up. Hopeful exiles are called to live lives of piety, living lives faithfully obeying your obligations to God, family, and home. I think there's a beautiful example of this. It, my brother finally got me to watch Shawshank Redemption, okay? I don't know why I was so stubborn. I don't know why I was so stubborn, but I, I just wouldn't get around to watching it. And he finally made me sit down and watch it. And I, and I think that a life of piety is beautifully described 
or, or, or displayed in Shawshank Redemption. Have you guys seen Shawshank? Because I'm going to give you some spoilers. All right. Well, a little bit of spoilers. One of the main characters is falsely imprisoned. Okay. There it is. That's, that's, that's what. So one of the main characters is falsely imprisoned. But the movie is not about him constantly fighting to defend himself. And it is not about him constantly appealing to the authorities of his innocence and trying to prove his innocence. And it's not of him uh, just giving up in prison. It's not of him just embracing the cruelty that fate had, had, had given him in his situation and then giving into that cruelty by becoming a cruel man himself. But instead, here's what he did. He saw the situation that he was in and he accepted it. And he began to live the kind of life that he ought to live regardless of how unjust the situation that he was put in. What did he start to do? He started to, he started to live a, a, as faithfully as he could as a prisoner, right? listening to the guards, um, helping out his fellow prisoners, doing and taking whatever small steps he could to improve their situation, right? to make it a little bit more livable. Because he was a, a pious man, who, who nobly accepted the burden that was placed upon him, what he did was he became the kind of man who not only the other prisoners, but even the guards and warden depended upon. Because this is what pious men do. Pious men build houses and live in them. They plant gardens and eat their produce. They, 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 they raise families. And they become the kind of people that their friends and their families and that even their community can start to depend upon. They become the kind of people who make an actual real difference in the world. The kind of people who don't just try to escape displeasure or discomfort at all costs, but to nobly accept the burden that is placed upon us. Just like Christ nobly took up our cross upon his shoulder. Understanding that whenever we accept our responsibility, there's great purpose and there's thriving for us and and the community around us. So let me leave you with this. Become the pious man who shoulders a noble burden just as we follow after our Savior who shouldered our burden on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and we ask that we would not be people who seek our own pleasure or our own good. That we would not be people who try to escape exile and wilderness or avoid it whenever it is what you have put before us. Lord, but that we would instead nobly uh, and with strength, with trust in you, accept the responsibility that you place before us in every situation. That we would see, that we would have the eyes to discern the calling and the invitation that you put before us in every situation. And that as we accept the resp- those responsibilities and shoulder those burdens, that you would make us people who look more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would be people who have not just been recipients of redemption, but then agents of redemption in the world around us. But Father, understanding that this only comes whenever we trust in you through whatever storms we go through in life, believing in your promises, and then persevering through the storms. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Uh, Fill up our souls with your promise, Lord, and not the promises of the world so that we might receive the power to persevere as we need and live out lives of piety that make a difference in our generation, but also in generations to come. We pray these things in your name. Amen.